Hey, listener. Before we get into the good stuff, I just wanted to let you know, if you'd rather just get this entire audiobook at once and start listening to it immediately, just head over to my website at nickthacker.com audio. That's N-I-C-K-T-H-A-C-K-E-R.com slash audio. This is The Atlantis Stone by me, Nick Thacker, read by my friend with a much better voice, Mike Vendetti. February 1791, just north of the Potomac River. The bubble-shaped submarine came to a slow halt. Its pilot looked through the bent glass in the craft's top section to get a visual of his target. This shallow section of the river was interrupted by a deeper divot in the river's bottom, a small, well-shaped valley that sunk into the riverbed about eight feet. It was into this hole that David's sights were set. He maneuvered the small submarine, an exact copy of one of his previous inventions, the turtle, into position at the edge of the small well. The watercraft wasn't exactly easy to move. A combination of foot pedals and hand cranks were required in perfect unison just to move the semi-buoyant craft forward, much less side to side. He needed to turn completely around, slowly moving turtle to stern toward the hole. His hands flew over the controls and cranks, ensuring there were no overcorrections or fast movements that might send the vessel spinning out of control. The Turtle II and her predecessor, Turtle, were both groundbreaking in many ways. David Bushnell designed the first American submarine in this second version using a water-based ballast system for controlling depth. This newer version incorporated a screw-type propeller to push the craft forward through the depth. To the untrained eye, this newer copy was exactly the same as its first incarnation. The major difference, however, was that Turtle II was not fitted with the large detachable mine that the turtle employed. The turtle's mine had been something David included as an afterthought. Given the turmoil of the British occupation of Boston and the surrounding colonies, He'd had enough foresight to fit his underwater vehicle with a functional, though limited, weapon system. Combining the detachable mine with the stealth of a vessel that could travel sight unseen below the water's surface, Bushnell had hoped to create a vessel that could one day be used in naval and military applications. If the turtle succeeded in deploying its timed explosive onto the underbelly of a British battleship, the young nation might gain an advantage over its powerful British opponent. David hadn't been able to get the mines to stick to the undersides of the ships, so while the intended effect, destroying British ships, hadn't been achieved, the outcome was still the same. The timed mines erupted from the ocean's floor and the British pulled their fleet back out of the harbor, unsure of what had caused the explosions. Overall, 
Bushnell's mission was a success. Today, the Turtle II had a different mission. Rather than a detachable mine on the submarine's backside, a 200-pound detachable box was added. Its contents were unknown to David. He was simply contracted to navigate to the proper location beneath the surface of the Potomac River and detach the box, placing it precisely where his employers designated. The well-shaped depression at the river's bottom, the corners of it now marked with temporary wooden rods. With his turn finally complete, David was now directly above the drop zone. He unscrewed the large connecting rivet and pressed the clasps holding the detachable unit in place. He heard a soft pop as the box disconnected from the rear wall. After waiting 30 seconds to ensure that the box had reached the river bottom, he turned the submarine 90 degrees to his left, facing the craft almost due north. From this angle, he could see his handiwork through the submarine's small bubble-shaped viewing window. The large crate, bound with metal bands and locked in four places, sat nestled at the bottom of the shallow well, half-submerged in silken pebbles. Satisfied, David began spinning the propeller with his feet and guided the craft up to speed toward the shore. His work was done, and his payment could be collected. Prologue, Part 2 From a rise above the northern edge of the river, three men watched silently, two on horseback, the third standing next to them. The Turtle Two was submerged for an hour or so, yet the men looked on. They said nothing to each other until David's ship resurfaced, preceded by a growing circle of lapping water and bubbles from the emptying ballast. As the submarine slid toward them, the man seated in the middle spoke to the man standing next to him. Benjamin, the mission is met with success. Finalize the plans for the layout at dawn. Then return here and deliver the letter to our associate, Mr. Lafon. Yes, Mr. Washington, Benjamin replied. He left on foot, heading west. Bushnell disembarked and returned from the river's edge. He looked up the hill at the two remaining men and gave a slight nod. It was finished. Washington looked to his companion. See that Mr. Bushnell is compensated for his fine work here today. The object should now be safe from prying eyes. He let out a tired sigh. I suggest that you forget it as well. All that is left in this matter is the drawing of the new city's layout. The man responded, I am afraid that our dear Charles will not welcome the news. He has struggled for months to perfect the layout of our nation's capital, and he does not always respond well to criticism. Washington took a long moment to answer. Mr. Jefferson, I have personally appointed Charles Lafont to oversee this project. The situation has changed. Our enemy is close to discovering our secret. We cannot continue to burden our nation with its protection. We shall leave it for another generation. Please see to it that Mr. Ellicott takes over the surveying and layout of this area. 
and that Mr. Banneker remains behind as his personal scribe and assistant. I am confident they will give our capital a foundation worthy of the secret it is built upon. Washington knew this secret could tear apart the fledgling nation. He also knew from experience how the promise of wealth and prosperity could tempt even the best of men. And the contents of the now-submerged box would prove a terrible temptation indeed. Washington and his colleagues had come so far in this new land and had taken great pains to ensure that they would leave their families and friends with a solid foundation. If left unguarded, the whispers and rumors of this secret could eventually lead to an uprising. Men would do anything to possess the knowledge it would provide. Washington knew the young government was not yet capable of dealing with this powerful object. It must be hidden away until someone worthy of its power might find it. Jefferson and Washington continued watching the great river before them as the sun sank into the water's far edge to their right. The Potomac would make a wonderful backdrop to a marvelous city, one that would hopefully see many centuries of growth and prosperity and serve as a beacon for the people of the great land. And one day, far beyond the end of the two men's lives, someone would discover the secret the Founding Fathers concealed in their capital city. Washington was sure of it, and he only prayed that it was someone worthy of the knowledge. Chapter 1 The air smelled like burning tar, smoke billowing from the mouths and openings of caves, locked out the sun and caused a deep gray shadow over the low rolling dunes. Captain Bryce Reynolds had a hard time breathing and crouched lower still, his face nearly touching the gritty sand. He winced, trying to see through the thick clouds of fire and smoke, and crawled forward slowly. The top edge of the dune he was on was merely feet in front of him and would offer his team much better visibility of the area in front of them. A mortar shell blasted 50 yards from his location, opening yet another hole in a previously unknown cave system. A sergeant, Artero Rodriguez, nearer to the explosion, rolled back on his heels and fell backwards onto the sand. Shit, he yelled. Forget these Republican guard guys. The friendly fire is going to kill us first. Bryce dismissed the man's complaint and instead focused again down the sights of his M16 assault rifle. The mortar blast had opened the roof of a large underground cavern, and Bryce could see numerous Iraqi Republican Guard units scurrying away from the collapsing rock formation. One of the men lifted a gun, aiming toward Bryce's team on the hill. The man next to him, Joseph Strahan, fired two rounds down into the cave. 
dropping the Iraqi soldier before he could shoot. Nice shot, soldier, Bryce said. He and the other four U.S. Army Rangers next to him on the dune waited for a moment to see if any more Iraqi guards would run out from the cavern, but none came. They inched forward, slowly reaching the top of the dune. More artillery shells smashed down onto the sandy field in front of them, and each explosion caused the team to retract a bit, tensing in anticipation of a sudden counterattack. A break in the dusty air came momentarily, and Bryce could see the city of Samara, Iraq, to the northwest. The Tigris to its left, winding through the sand and rock plains like a mirage. Immediately ahead, he saw the huts and tents of the Iraqi Republican Guard, and men running about in preparation. Mortar blasts continued to launch debris and rock upwards, causing even more commotion among the opposing forces. There, Bryce called out to the rest of his team. That's where we're headed. We need to secure the perimeter first, and Strahan and I will grab the package. Eyes up on me. He didn't wait for his team's response. They knew the mission objectives. He rose to his feet, the ranger team following. Master Sergeant Andreessen and the kid, Private First Class Jason O'Neill, took the left flank. They ran a straight line path down the front side of the dune, pacing their advance carefully. The small camp they were ordered to infiltrate, the small command and weapons depot the south just outside the city of Samara, and to locate and retrieve the package. A list of firing orders and coordinates. Their cover would be an ongoing onslaught of artillery fire, raining down on the area from the north, hopefully causing the Iraqi soldiers to anticipate an attack from that direction. His team spread out over the wide expanse of sand dunes and rocky plains and he heard his second-in-command recite the mission objectives to the rest of the men through the radio transmitter. At least they know their mission objectives, he thought. Captain Reynolds, however, had one more objective, one that was not known to the other members of the small five-man ranger team. Prior to their airdrop, Major Dwight Maines pulled Bryce aside near the cockpit of the cargo plane and pulled him away from the rest of his men. The noise in the fuselage was deafening, but thanks to the ear-mounted two-way radios they'd been equipped with, the noise-canceling devices prevented them from needing to shout. Reynolds, there's one more thing. What's that, sir? Bryce asked. In addition to your current objectives, I need you to locate another package, Maines answered. Yes, sir. What's the item? It's a book. A notebook, I guess. I have no idea what's inside. Just locate and retrieve it and bring it back. I'll take care of it from there. Affirmative. So what exactly is this all for? I mean, a notebook. And you don't even know what's inside? Bryce asked. Look, Bryce, I don't understand it all either. This is definitely a need-to-know mission, and... He looked to the men in the cargo plane's interior preparing for the jump. I expect that you'll keep this under wraps as well. Of course. Say no more. See you on the other side, Major. He turned and walked down the middle of the fuselage, the two facing rows of seated combat soldiers, suited and ready for deployment. Bryce nodded at them and took his place at the front of the line, readying himself for the drop.
Hey, listener. This podcast is a year-long journey, but I get it. Sometimes we're in it for the destination, not the journey. If you want it all at once, right now, without having to wait a year, grab it here, nickthacker.com slash audio. That's N-I-C-K-T-H-A-C-K-E-R.com slash audio. Oh, and if you use the code PODCAST2021 at checkout, I'll give you another 20% off.